I would like to begin by reading from the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 9 through 13, and that is the words to which I'd like to direct your attention this morning. Precious words from a very precious Gospel. Beginning in verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Let us pray. Lord, we really want to continue in a vein of worship. Particularly because we, we feel the pull of the flesh. We, we, feel, we feel the allure of the world so strongly. The materialism that's rampant, even the other forms of immorality that are applauded and praised during this time of year. It is so easy to be distracted. It is so easy to miss what we're celebrating. Even if we know it intellectually, it's so easy to have our hearts be dulled. And I pray. As, as, as a son pleading to his father that you would not allow our hearts to remain dull, but that you would open our eyes, that you would, you would again condescend to us and open our eyes, the eyes of our heart, that we might see your glory and treasure you, that all the things that, that look so attractive in the world would grow strangely dim. And that we would go forth rejoicing as we hear your word even, as we contemplate what you've revealed to us. That these would not just be old ideas, but they would come with freshness and with strength and with encouragement. Because we need that, Father. We are weak and we are so easily, so easily distracted, so easily dulled. Awaken us. Awaken our hearts. Use your word that we might go forth rejoicing. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, again, we are here this morning to celebrate the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the very first time a birth was mentioned in Scripture is actually in Genesis 3.15, which you are aware of, where God promised that Eve's offspring would bruise the serpent's head. Adam and Eve had just turned away from God. He had provided them with just this beautiful home in the Garden of Eden. And they had abandoned it for a piece of fruit. That it allured their heart and affection. 
And they had allowed sin to enter the world with all of its consequences. And as God comes to them and confronts them in their foolishness and in their error, He also gives them hope. As He reveals the plague of the consequences that they have unleashed, He offers them hope for a future redemption and a reversal of all that was cursed. And that's what's said here. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, God would reverse the destruction caused by Satan by means of a child yet to be born. A promised child would come and reverse the effects of sin by a miraculous birth. And centuries later, that child had not yet come, though he was anticipated. And then God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans and revealed to him that the promised Savior would be one of his seed, one of his offspring. He says this in Genesis 12:3. I will bless you, those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We know that this was a prophecy about Abraham's offspring. One of his offspring would be the one that would bless all the other nations. And yet Abraham continued to grow old. And this child, he didn't even have a child, let alone the promised child. And his wife continued to be barren, and he began to lose confidence in the promise. And so he and his wife contrived a plan that they were going to bring about this child. And so he slept with his wife's handmaiden, Hagar, in this attempt to bring about the Lord's promise through his own efforts. And such an act was far from pleasing to the Lord. In fact, Hagar's son, Ishmael, and his offspring have been in conflict with the Jews ever since. So instead of bringing about the promised hope, it actually brought about more destruction. And it actually wasn't until Abraham was a hundred years old that Sarah finally did conceive and bore Isaac. Why did God wait so long? Why wait? He makes this promise. Who knows how old Abraham was? Maybe 30, 40? And then years and years, decades go by. Why wait? God was wanting Abraham to recognize that Abraham needed him and that his power would only be seen through weakness, through man's helplessness, not through man's effort and man's ingenuity. He wanted Abraham to recognize he absolutely needed him for this promise to come about. It could not be contrived in his own efforts. And this is what Paul tells us in Romans, he explains, In hope he believed against hope, that he should become the father of many nations. In other words, it was a, it was a hopeless situation, physically speaking. He could not will his child to come about. He could not bring him about through his own fleshly efforts. 
As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. He continued to trust God, though, yes, he did battle doubt and discouragement. He still hoped against hope because God had promised. And as he learned to rely upon the power of God and not upon himself, it was then that God brought his offspring about. God was teaching Abraham that the promised son would not arrive through works of the flesh, but through faith. And even though, again, this child Isaac was not the one promised in Genesis 12, rather would be one of his descendants, the promise did come about. And it was about a thousand years later when God made this pronouncement to the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 7:14, he said, The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and his name will be Emmanuel. Which is why we sang the song that we sang. There was this longing in Israel for when would this promised son come? Emmanuel means God with us. When would God come to be among us? When would the Messiah appear? And this prophecy identifies that the Savior would come, and he would be identified through a miraculous birth. His identity would be marked by being born of a virgin, which is impossible. And that's the point. Now, we, 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 we think about the virgin birth, especially this time of year, so uh, um, regularly. I think it, it's easy to miss the out-of-this-world nature of that. It is not normal. For virgins to give birth to children. And if that confuses you, children, ask your parents why. That was a miracle. God was communicating something. He was trying to make a point. That for his plan of redemption to be accomplished, something supernatural, something miraculous needed to take place. He was wanting the Jews to take their eyes off, again, off themselves, off their own works, off their own efforts, and to look to Him. The same thing He was trying to teach them when He ransomed them out of Egypt, as He led them through the desert, that they would stop looking to their own resources and just trust in Him. He wanted them to recognize He needed to intervene for their salvation. But then... Centuries pass, and the Jews, they they continued to wait, and they continued to pine. When would this Messiah appear? O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel that mourns in lowly exile here, that mourns for the Son of God to appear. Years. Years passed, centuries, and then Gabriel showed up, and he appeared to Mary and declared this, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. 
He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And Mary knew what was being declared, as we see in her, the song she declares, the prophetic song that's called the Magnificat. She responds to afterwards. And again, recognize, Gabriel's declaring to her, you're going to give birth to the Messiah. She's a virgin. She's also a poor Nazarene. God was going to come in this fashion. Not like the Jews expected. In a completely different way. In God kind of power, supernatural birth, not what man would expect. Being born to some king. Very different. And Mary rejoiced because she understood that all of Israel's hope rested upon this miraculous verse. And again, why born of a virgin? Well, there's theological reasons. One reason is that in order for Jesus to be a sufficient Savior, He needed to be fully God so that He could sufficiently pay the price for His people's sin. But He also needed to be fully man in order to stand as their substitute. He needed to be just like them. He needed to become a man. So He needed to be fully God and fully man. And this could only come about in this immaculate conception. He was conceived by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb. And the other reason is, again, to show that this birth did not come about, about by natural means. Again, born of a virgin. It's a miracle. And this miraculous birth is not brought about, again, by human effort. Even less so than, Ab- than Isaac was. Now, again, Isaac wasn't born until Abraham was 100 years old and Sarah had been barren that whole time. But it was still brought about by Abraham. This, no question, was a work of God. Mary did nothing to bring this miraculous birth about. And likewise, men's salvation was brought to them, not brought about by them. Our salvation was brought to us. It was not brought about by us. That's critical that you understand that. And the Messiah, again, was identified through his miraculous birth. And those who believe in him and receive him will receive and experience a similar miraculous birth. So just as the Messiah was brought about by a miraculous birth. Those who believe in the Messiah, those who receive the Messiah, likewise will experience a miraculous birth. They will be, as as Jesus says in John 3, born again. Those who believe Him and receive Him will experience a similar miraculous birth. And that is what the Apostle John is referring to in the passage before us. John 1, 13, he says... 
But to all who did receive him and who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So everything up to this point, that's just been introduction. It's giving the setting for the miraculous birth. And here John identifies the Messiah. He tells us who this Messiah is in the first two verses. And then he describes two ways people choose to respond to him. Let's first look at the identity of Jesus. It says in verse 9 that, he, that the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And he was in the world. And the world was made through him. And yet the world did not know him. And the first way we see Jesus described is the light. He's the light. And this is the reason he's described this way is because of the prophecy that was read to us earlier today in in, uh, Isaiah 9. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, darkness, on them the light has shone. So it's a fulfillment of this prophecy that he is the light that has come into the dark world. But it's also because it's a metaphor uh, that that really summarizes Jesus' time here on earth. As the light, he's the one that came to bring truth, to scatter the darkness, to scatter ignorance, to reveal God's purposes, God's plan of salvation, God's truth. Again, light, as we know, exposes things for what they truly are. Maybe as a child, you experience this, uh, maybe after watching maybe a scary movie or something, you're, you go, go to bed and you can't sleep. And you're a little scared, you're nervous, and you open your eyes in your dark room and you see something that looks like a monster in the shadows. And you stare at it. And the more you stare at it, the more you're convinced that something's dreadfully wrong, that there's some sort of evil thing that has crept into your room. And you cry out for your mom or your dad to come in and rescue you. And they, they run into the room thinking some awful thing has happened. And they flick on the light and all of a sudden you stop screaming. Because you realize with the shedding of light, it was just a doll propped up or some toy propped up in some funny way. It was, it was not what you thought it was. Jesus came to shed light, to expose those things that are hidden in darkness. The truth is seen. Likewise, in the game of blind man's bluff, you have a you know, blindfold put around you and you, you, you're stumbling around trying to feel what's in front of you and you can't see and you get disoriented and confused and maybe frustrated, especially when your friends mock you and laugh at you because you look like such a fool. But when that blindfold is removed... Everything that seemed so scary all of a sudden was exposed to be nothing you needed to be afraid of. You're no longer disoriented. You can see straight. You know exactly where to go. You're not confused. The light has shown. Jesus came to give light, to show us the way of salvation, that we wouldn't be confused, that we wouldn't stumble around, that we wouldn't be disheartened, that we wouldn't be scared of what God had planned. And that... He knew that that in order for that effect to take place, 
He needed to come to shed the light, to reveal his plan of salvation. As the light of the world, Jesus came to heal men's spiritual blindness. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 4, that it's the God of this world, referring to Satan, who has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan does not want people to see the truth. He wants them to walk in darkness. He wants them to be blind. And that is man's condition. Unless God causes us to be born again, we remain spiritually blind. The things even that we want to see, we can't. If you're blind, you might want with all of your heart to see this sunset that's being described by you from to your friends and and it's not a lack necessarily of desire you just you want to see it, but you can't make yourself see you're blind and the god of this world satan has blinded people's hearts they can't see the glory maybe they can hear it described but they're not drawn to it except maybe out of curiosity maybe they can hear the joy as people describe What they see in this sunset, but the blind person can't see it. And therefore their heart is unmoved. Until they're willing to recognize they're blind. And they need that blindness to be removed. And Jesus came to remove that blindness. And yet many people refused to follow him. In John chapter 8, Jesus warned the people of their spiritual blindness. He said, for judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. What do you mean there? Look at verse 40. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Are you saying we're blind? Do you know who you're talking to? We're the leaders of Israel. We probably know more scripture than you. We've grown up. In these great families, we've studied, we, we have the Old Testament memorized. Of course, they wouldn't say Old Testament, that's all that was there. We have the scriptures memorized. Are we also blind? That's what's conveyed in this question. Jesus said to him, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, your guilt remains. Well, what's he saying? The fact that they're unwilling to recognize that they're blind demonstrates how guilty they really are. They're so convinced they see the truth when in reality they're blind to it. But because they're unwilling to acknowledge that they're blind, they can't see. They need to see that they're blind. They failed to recognize this. They were blind, but they didn't know it. And it was those who knew that they were blind, Jesus says, that were actually able to see. Jesus' point was that their confidence in themselves was what prohibited them from recognizing who he was and why they needed him so desperately. Again, they thought the Messiah was going to come to bring them peace, to conquer the Romans and to establish this great kingdom. They just needed some military man to come in and humiliate their enemies. Not realizing they were the problem. They needed their sin dealt with. They were spiritually 
blind. They needed their heart changed, but because they wouldn't recognize that, they remained blind. He came to give light to the world, but it says in here, the world did not know him. It's not what they expected. The other way John identifies him is as the creator. Earlier, actually, in um, John chapter 1, verse 3, John says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that was made. In other words, he created all things. This light, Jesus, was not just a man. He was the creator of the world. He existed before everything else. In eternity past. And the point being that not only was Jesus the one who would come to reveal truth, he was the foundation of truth. He was was the author of truth. He was God the creator. This is what Hebrews says about this. Long ago, and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days... He's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. So again, you see this. Jesus is coming to give revelation, and Jesus is God. He's the creator. He is the savior. He is the way. The only way. He is the truth, and he is the life. And all the miracles he performed, especially rising from the dead after he had been crucified, proved he was God. He was the creator. He was not just a good teacher. He was God. But then we we read this in verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own people, and his own people did not receive him. He's speaking generally. Of course, there were some Jews who believed, but most didn't. I mean, just let that hit you. They sang, in a sense, O come, O come, Emmanuel, pining for their Messiah, longing for him to appear, to rescue them from their oppression. And he finally comes. They said, that's not what we want. You, You can't be the Messiah. Look at you. Like half the things you say just make us angry. Our great respected religious leaders don't think a whiff of anything you say. You're you're just a poor Nazarene teacher trying to make a name for yourself. You're not the Messiah. And it seemed for a moment as he went into Jerusalem that maybe he would do something great. The very end of his ministry, you guys remember Palm Sunday, the crowds line the street, streets and they call out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're thinking, maybe this is it. Maybe he's going to finally stick it to the Romans. But then it's just days later, he's put on trial for a crime he never committed. He'd done nothing wrong except speak the truth. And they all cry out, crucify him. We have no king but Caesar. They said, crucify him. Crucify him. Why? 
Because he wasn't impressive. He wasn't what they expected. He, he wasn't going about salvation the way they wanted. He didn't look like God. He looks rather normal. Just another peasant Nazarene boy. Born in a stable. And who knows who his father was. This couldn't be the Messiah. Surely the Messiah of all mankind would appear differently than as a baby in a stable. So there's really two responses to Jesus. He is God. Come in the flesh. Some rejected him. Most rejected him. And that's what's described here. He was one who was defined by the humblest of circumstances, not characterized by the glory of this world. He was not a conquering warlord like they expected, but a humble, homeless peasant. And it was because he failed to meet their expectations, they turned on him. And just like Judas, when they recognized that this man wasn't going to bring them, it wasn't what they expected, they turned on him. When he didn't bring them freedom and fame and fortune, they decided they wanted no part in him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But some did. John tells us that some did see the light. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And the critical difference between how these people receive is caught up in two words. Believe and receive. Both are critical. They're tied together. One does not receive Christ and yet fail to believe in him. Likewise, one doesn't believe in Jesus and fail to receive him. Those who believe also receive. It's the same thing. What they believe is that he's the Messiah. They recognize that he's not just another great teacher. He's not just another smart man who knows the Bible, but he's the actual son of God. And they recognize that he came into the world because we needed our sins to be paid for. We needed an atonement. We needed a propitiation because unless our we had a perfect sacrifice made on our behalf. We would have no hope when we come to stand before God to give an account for our lives. They believe that there's nothing they could do to save themselves. And that He alone is the answer to their greatest need. And seeing that, believing all these things, that He is the Messiah, they then receive Him. In believing, they receive Him. So this, again, this tells us that salvation is not just about believing who Jesus is. It's not just about information. It's not simply an intellectual response. It's a spiritual response. That's why it uses the word receive. What does it mean to receive? I'll use an illustration. Um, this time of year... It's Christmas. Many of you tomorrow will receive gifts. 
But if you return one of those gifts after Christmas, could you be said to really receive it? Maybe you were just being polite. You know, I wanted to defend the person who gave it to you. But you, you, maybe you received it for a moment, but it didn't stick. You didn't receive it from your heart. You wanted something else. It's the receiving from the heart that John is speaking about. Another illustration. Imagine that you meet a man wandering around in the desert. He hasn't had anything to drink maybe for 24 hours. It's hot. It's thirsty. His lips are beginning to become blistered. And you come up to him and you tell him you have water to offer him. And you, you hand him a water bottle. If he does not receive that water bottle... He obviously doesn't trust you or something. <laughs> he thinks it's poisoned or something. Or he doesn't believe that's actually going to meet his need. The thirsting that he feels, he, he just thinks of it as just maybe some other, it's a, something else. He doesn't realize what it is. Maybe he's delusioned. Maybe he's blind. Those desperate for Christ not only believe him, but they receive him because they see he is what they need. They need him. That's what they're thirsting for and there's nothing else they want. You could hand that thirsty man a sandwich and he would be disgusted. If he understood what you're offering him was water. They only want the water. That's all they want. Jesus describes it in this way. When a person understands their need for Jesus, see him as he really is, there's nothing that would keep them away from him. You, familiar parable. He says in Matthew 13, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in such, search of fine pearls who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, think of the thirsty man illustration. When he sees what it is, that's what he needs. If it costs him everything, I want that because if I don't have that, I'm going to perish. And so he receives it because it's now become the most precious, the most valuable thing ever. And nothing's going to keep him from receiving it. To receive Jesus means you find him so valuable that you would sell all that you have to have him. This is why Jesus says in Luke 14, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he's laid the foundation... It's not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Then verse 33. So therefore, any of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be by a disciple. Jesus couldn't be more clear. To receive Jesus means he is the most precious thing in your life. And you would, without a doubt, be willing to lose everything. In order to have that. If that is not what Jesus is for you. You haven't received him. That's what Jesus is saying. Jesus wants you to know that. 
He doesn't want anybody to think they see when they're blind. And Jesus didn't say that to the, to, the, to the Pharisees back in John 8 out of anger. He was heartbroken. Nobody would want to commit to following Jesus in this manner unless they truly understood how desperately they needed Him. But if they do understand, they would easily say, as Paul did, whatever gain I had, I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which only comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. He's saying, all that I tried to do in my flesh, all my efforts, all that worldly glory that I accomplished, I was at the top of my, of my place in life, the height of Judaism. And it's nothing. Why? Why would I give it all up? Because I found the real thing. I found the real thing that satisfies the joy that can't be quenched. The thing that's worth dying for. It's become so precious to me. People don't say this in response to ideas, in response to philosophies. But in response to a heart change. To see life like this is not natural. To love Christ this much is not natural. It can only be done. You will only see Christ in this way if a miracle is performed. Just like there is no way the Virgin Mary is going to have a baby unless a miracle is takes place. Likewise, you will not see Jesus like this. You will not treasure him like this unless a miracle takes place. You need to be born again. And that's what John says in John chapter or in verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Verse 13 tells us again how one actually receives Jesus. And he tells them it's by a miraculous birth. And again, remember why, why did God wait so long for Abraham to finally have his child? He was trying to teach Abraham it was physically impossible. There's nothing he could do to bring it about. A miracle needed to take place. God had to work, not Abraham. Now, true, Abraham did have a part. He acted in faith. But we know that didn't come about except for the miracle. He was over 100 years old. His wife had been barren. They, yes, Abraham acted in faith, but the miracle was brought about by God. And this is John's point, verse 13. One can only become a Christian if God changes the heart. You need to be born again. John tells us that those who receive Jesus, who become children of God, are born, notice, not of blood. Not of blood. 
He's talking about physical lineage here. A person has not become a Christian simply because their parents were Christians. It's not just the Jews that are going to be saved. There were many that weren't saved. Why? Because they didn't believe and receive. It's not your parents that determine your salvation. It's this miracle. A person can live their whole life in church, their whole life, and remain stone cold spiritually dead. He said also it's not of the will of the flesh. This means there's no amount of good works, there's no amount of law keeping that could get a person right with God. So a person doesn't become a Christian through doing good things either. A miracle must take place. Nor of the will of man. In other words, we can't will ourselves to become Christians. Any more than Abraham could will his child to come to be. Any more than Mary could will the Messiah to come as a virgin into her womb. We can't choose to bring about this transformation. Nor can we bring it about in others. I could, I could preach up here till I'm blue in the face. And unless God chooses to work a miracle... No change. You might have friends or family members you've been praying for to receive Christ. You could, you could give away all that you have. You could make the greatest sacrifices to prove how desperately you want them to know Christ. But unless God does a miracle in that person's heart, they'll remain unchanged. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to save our children or anybody else. Only God can bring about the new birth. And true, like Abraham, we have a part. We pray and we plead and we speak the word of God. We act in faith, but only God can cause a person to become born again. Who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but check that, but of God. It's God who does a work. So not only was our Savior manifested through a miraculous birth, again, likewise, our salvation is the work of a miraculous birth. It's not something we do to bring it about. It's done to us. We too must be born again by the power of the Holy Spirit. And to illustrate this, I want to use, I think, just a a poignant story from church history. George Whitfield is probably the greatest evangelist in church history. As far as how many people he reached with the gospel. He was the front front man in the Great Awakening, both in England and in America. He preached to a culture that was spiritually dead. It was after the Reformation, but it didn't take long for... Just religion to become just cold formalism. People were going to church, growing up with the catechism. They could rattle off their doctrine. They could rattle off their theology. But they were stone cold spiritually dead. And he began to preach. And he would constantly emphasize in his preaching the need for people to be born again. And in fact, after one of his messages to thousands of people, 
out in this English countryside. A woman who had heard him preach maybe once or twice before came up to him and said, Master Whitfield, why is it that in all of your sermons, and even today you keep saying, you must be born again, you must be born again, you must be born again. Why do you keep saying that? And his response to her was, ma'am, because you must be born again. And his point was, if you need to ask that question, you don't understand how desperate you are to have God do a miracle in your heart or another person's heart. And his insistence upon this doctrine really finds its root not only in Scripture, but in his own conversion. One is, this is what one historian says about Whitfield. When he was a student at Oxford, he joined a group of religious enthusiasts known as the Holy Club. And its members practiced early rising, lengthy devotions. They strove for a self-discipline which left no moment wasted throughout the day. At nightfall, they wrote a diary which enabled them to scrutinize their actions that they had done and condemn themselves to a fault. They fasted each Wednesday and Friday, every week. They also regularly visited Oxford's prisons and the poorhouse. And each member contributed to a fund with which they relieved the needs of inmates and maintained a school for the prisoners' children. I mean, these people were devout. And it was during this time that one of Whitfield's friends, Charles Wesley, the man who said, who wrote the first song that we sang today, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. Charles Wesley handed him a book. Charles Wesley was also part of this holy club, as well as his brother John Wesley. And the name of the book was called The Life of God and the Soul of Man by Henry Scougal. And as Whitfield read this book, it contradicted everything that he was living for and believed. And he was deeply troubled. It's a great book. Um, You can buy hard copies of it really cheap, but you can also just get it online. I encourage you to read it. It's very encouraging. And it's really all about the need for a new birth and what the new birth really looks like in a person's heart. It contradicted all that he believed about salvation and it rocked his world. This is what he says. God showed me that I must be born again Or be damned. I learned that a man may go to church, say his prayers, receive the sacrament, and yet not be a Christian. How did my heart rise and shudder like a poor man that's afraid to look into his account books, lest he should find himself bankrupt? Shall I burn this book? Shall I throw it down? Or shall I search it? And I did search it. And holding the book in my hand, I thus address the God of heaven and earth. Lord, if I'm not a Christian, or if I'm not a real one, for Jesus' sake, show me what Christianity is that I might not be damned at last. And he says, God soon showed me. For in reading a few lines further, that true religion is a union of the soul with God and Christ formed within us. A ray of divine light was instantaneously darted in upon my soul. And from that moment, but not till then, did I know I must become a new creature. And then late in life, as he looked back, uh, as he's approaching his deathbed, he looked back upon this day 
when he was saved and he declared, I know the place. It may be superstitious, perhaps, but whenever I go to Oxford, I cannot help running to that place where Jesus Christ first revealed himself to me and gave me new birth. I mean, this, this transformation, when he realized that he was blind, that he needed a work of God to make him a new creature, and it happened. The very place itself became sanctified in his soul. That he couldn't help but running there and rejoice in that great day. And we must remember that Whitfield was a very devout man. By looking at him from the outside, you would think, this guy, this guy is what it means to be a Christian. He's got it. Look at the sacrifices. Look at the devotion. And likewise, his fellow Holy Club members, John and Charles Wesley, they didn't get saved either until years later, after John had been a missionary in Georgia. He was a terrible missionary, made a big wreck of things. He got saved coming back from his missionary trip on the ship back to England in a conversation with a Moravian who shared the gospel with him. Tells us a person could be very devout and yet never experience genuine salvation, never actually be born again. And I think this is especially true of kids who grow up going to church. They grow up just assuming they're Christians because they've always been. They've always gone to church. Never realize that a transformation must take place, that they too must be born again. And so I ask, do any of you feel the spiritual emptiness that Whitfield felt? That even though he was striving so hard, doing everything he could, he still, it just, his heart wasn't there. It was religion. It was, it was something he did. It was an event that he participated in. It was the holy club. It wasn't his life. It wasn't the most precious thing in the world that he would eventually give everything for, for people to know about. And maybe you've assumed that believing in Jesus was enough. Again, not realizing that you also must receive him as your greatest treasure. And again, it's not denying your faith. To recognize that it's empty. To recognize that it's just not real. It's just being honest. It would be like Nicodemus the Pharisee acknowledging, you're right, Jesus, I must be born again. If you discover that you have a new Christmas gift, the gift that your friend gave you, and you open it and you realize... It's busted. It doesn't work. It's, you'd be foolish to not want to return it, especially if you're given a gift receipt. Just because you want to remain loyal to that gift, even though it's broken. If it's broken, it's of no use. It's dead. 
exchange it for the real thing. Go to the maker and say, I want the real thing. Give me the real thing. And don't approach Christ like a a person who, an angry customer that returns their gift to Costco because it's broken, but in humility, asking Him to have mercy upon you. The miraculous birth of Jesus Christ, again, points to our own need of a miraculous birth. And if you've never truly received Christ as your treasure, now is the moment. Ask Him to do that miracle within you. And know, know that all who cry out to Him, He will receive. He will turn no one away. Jesus says this in Matthew eleven twenty eight: Come to Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. If you feel weary of your spirituality, weary of just trying and not experiencing, Come to Him and receive Him. Let's pray. Lord, I pray on behalf of anybody here who may not have actually experienced the new birth, the transformation of going from being dead spiritually to being alive spiritually, to becoming a new creation that You might have mercy upon them and call them to Yourself. Bring them to Yourself. Do that miracle in their heart. If there's anybody who is blind but does not realize it, help them to see that. And likewise, Lord, if there are those here who are truly awakened, who have experienced the new birth and yet just are have become cold spiritually because of the entanglements of this world and distractions, bad habits or whatever, that you would stir within them a reminder of your grace, a reminder of your glory, that they would again see you. You would renew in them the joy of their salvation. That they would be stirred again as they were at first to want to proclaim this great news to all that they know. That this season would not just be a season of tradition, but of an opportunity to proclaim the excellencies of you who have rescued us out of darkness and brought us into your marvelous light. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.